1: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. I'm joined today by Liam Shaw, a postdoctoral fellow at the McLean Lab in Oxford, researching bacterial genetics. But he has a piece in the latest issue of the LRB on coral reefs. It's a review of Life on the Rocks by Julie Bervold. Hello, Liam, and thank you very much for talking to me. Nice to be here. So I suppose begin with the basics, although it's not actually that basic, is it? Um, and What is coral? Animal, vegetable or mineral? Or a mix of all of the above?
0: Yes, it's a great question. And I mean, that's something which early thinkers on coral struggled with a lot. So it sort of looks plant-like, but is mineral in the sense that it's kind of rocky. If you take it out of the sea and keep it in a cabinet of curiosities, Um, it's mineral in that sense. But now we understand that coral is within the animal kingdom. So although it has this plant-like appearance, it's in fact formed of colonies of many, many tiny animals of the same sort. And this is the taxonomic classification of corals. They now sit within the Anthozoa, which means flower animals. And the Anthozoa is a broader taxonomic classification that includes things other than corals. So things like anemones, which are sort of single things called polyps, which is basically an animal that has uh, these stinging tentacles that come out of it. So in, in corals that we're talking about, the corals that build coral reefs, many of these polyps come together and form a colony and they assemble a skeleton of calcium carbonate around them. And that solidifies and forms the kind of hardness of the coral that we see in the reefs, but there are other sorts of coral as well, such as soft corals, and those don't really form a hard skeleton. They form a gelatinous kind of sticky skeleton, and so those are things like the sort of sea fans and things like that that you see on coral reefs, but they're not actually made of of hard calcium carbonate.
1: Were well, they once thought to have been a kind of seaweed? I mean, presumably you look at them, they look more plant than animal in some ways.
0: Yes, I mean, the taxonomy of these things is always uh, very difficult and challenging. And it's normally true that in many areas of natural history, taxonomy first proceeded along kind of morphological grounds. So you have things about shape and appearance. But then more recently, as we've had DNA sequencing, you're able to trace the phylogenetic relationships. So trace the family history of all of these different things. And you often find that similar morphologies can actually be found in things that are separated by hundreds of millions of years of evolution. So the modern corals that we see on coral reefs, those sort of emerged probably about 200 million years ago. There were corals before that time and reefs have existed probably for about 500 million years, but they were formed by other organisms, some of which were corals, some of which were not. And the the corals that formed those in the past were slightly different to the corals that we have today and that that's not really my area of expertise but there's sort of a vast complexity within
1: corals and presumably even within the ones which build reefs there are many different species of reef building corals i mean if you were to i don't know take a look at the corals in a reef in the caribbean and one in the red sea and one in the great barrier reef how different are the animals from each other So I think there's over 2,000 species of
0: coral that have been described. So that's a lot of coral. And they have these broad types, Uh, again, to return to morphology. So you have things, you have the massive corals, and those are named because of their kind of shape. So they have a sort of hemispherical appearance. They're just basically lumps of coral that proceed out like boulders. And those can grow to be very big, several metres across and they're, they're actually formed by the smallest members of the coral family in terms of the size of the polyps. So each polyp is only about a millimeter in diameter, but they can create these huge things that contain many millions of them. And those actually are used for building material. So, so in places like the Maldives, where it's very sandy and there are these porite corals, these large boulder-like corals found just offshore, people actually use them as building materials to make these coral stone mosques. So there's one mosque um, in Malé, the Malé Friday Mosque, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site made of coral, so using coral as the building material. But then there are other forms of coral, such as branching corals. So these are sometimes called the elk horn coral because they look like antlers, and those are very, very different. They're much more tree-like with slender branches that come off. And those grow very quickly. They can grow up to 10 centimetres gear because there's simply not that much material needed to extend. Whereas on the surface of a vast boulder, that accumulates very slowly. And you also have you know, brain corals, mushroom corals, table corals, all of these wonderful shapes.
1: Yeah, and they all take their names from the shapes. But presumably in terms of the boulder corals, As it were, chemically, I mean, it's no different from limestone, is it? It's a block of calcium carbonate, as it were. That's right. So it's assembled by animal forms, but in terms of what it actually is, it's a big block of calcium carbonate, which you could, yeah.
0: That's right. It's apparently, when it's wet, it's very easy to cut, I suppose, because it's still living in some sense. So there's kind of, it's easy to slice through and carve up into blocks. And then once it's dried, you've basically got a big block of limestone that you can you can put together into structures.
1: And the process by which the corals build these, because, I mean, it is I mean, it is amazing. I was going to say in one sentence it's amazing, but I mean, it is fundamentally not that different from the way a snail makes its shell. I mean, maybe not in terms of processes, but the idea of we have this soft, squidgy animal form that produces these hard mineral structures that is it's just I mean snails do that as well don't they
0: yeah and I suppose we do it as well in our bones our skeleton is you know we take minerals and make soft stuff into hard stuff but what's interesting about coral I think is that they do that through symbiosis with algae within them which we haven't mentioned yet but is one of the major features of coral so they the corals that build reefs and this is not all corals, as I say, but when we think of a coral reef, the conventional picture we have in our head, those corals are symbiotic with algae, which uh, live inside their bodies and actually inside their cells and photosynthesize. So turn light into energy and allow some of that energy to go to the coral. And that energy is used by the coral as part of the process of basically pulling the building blocks for their skeleton out of seawater, and there's an interesting kind of antagonism there at the heart of that symbiosis because so photosynthesis requires carbon dioxide. The basic formula that people may remember from school is that carbon dioxide and water plus light is the reaction that photosynthesis proceeds with, but that requires uh, carbon dioxide, but When you dissolve calcium carbonate, you get carbon dioxide. So on the one hand, you've got this, the coral is wanting to form something solid out of seawater. And on the other side, you've got this photosynthesis. And the photosynthesis proceeds better when it's more acidic. And the formation of the calcium carbonate is harmed when it's more acidic, you know, because it will just dissolve. So within the coral itself the coral manages the pH. So within the little pockets within its cells where the algae are localised, the pH can be as low as 4, which is pretty acidic. And within the rest of the coral, it's similar to within our cells, something between 7 and 7.4. And then in the ocean outside, it's maybe about 8.1, I think on average. So you've got these gradients of pH, which are produced by moving hydrogen ions around basically moving little charged or well, their protons across these areas within the cell to allow these very different reactions to take place at different locations
1: so it's a very finely balanced complicated sophisticated system i mean as as <laughs> as a lot of life is but that and i mean we'll come on to a bit later the, the ways in which corals are under threat but obviously a more acidic ocean is going to upset that balance and that's part of the problem but how long has it been known that coral have algae living inside their cells that must be quite a recent discovery
0: so that discovery i believe goes back to the 19th century to 1883 when it was observed that there were these small organisms within the coral So before that point, it wasn't known that there was this symbiosis. And the small organisms are called, well, what they're called is actually a matter of debate. So people will often call them zooxanthella or zooxanthellae, but coral scientists will probably refer to them as symbiodinium because that's the genus that most of the algae belong to. And that's the term for the many different species that exist. So, yeah, when they were first discovered, it was just kind of noticed that there were these small, yellowish, tiny organisms within coral. Now we know that through DNA sequencing that there are many, many different species again. And corals can have different partners within that symbiotic relationship. And in fact, it seems that when coral bleaching happens sometimes one algal partner is lost and a new one that's more tolerant to heat can move in and some people think that this is the solution to coral bleaching that we can sort of tweak the symbiotic relationship and choose the algal partner more wisely and therefore allow corals to survive in warmer water.
1: But is it not that's not something that we can just leave leave to evolution?
0: Well, so some people would take that view. And in fact, it's true that the effects of warming water on corals is not going to be a linear process. So, for example, if there's a bleaching event one year, that will kill off the corals that are poorer at surviving in warmer water. And if they're gone, they're gone. That's natural selection. So the corals that regrow back will have been selected to be better at Surviving in warmer water. And so one might optimistically hope that in future years the effects of bleaching will be less. So that is partially true. And if there were only going to be a certain amount of warming, that might well be okay. However, if warming is going to proceed way past the temperature window that essentially all coral can survive in, that's going to be a problem, even if there is a selective effect each year and the other the other issue um, there's always hope that something will survive we're not going to successfully wipe out all life on earth I don't think even in the most doom-laden scenarios however what survives might not be what we want so for example in coral bleaching we get excellent survival of algae which coats the entire reef and creates this horrible, slimy world that we don't find particularly attractive. And that's generally the case that when we wipe out diversity from ecosystems, often organisms which bounce back really well and take advantage of the niche space that has been cleared are the more weed-like or sort of fast-growing organisms that create these monocultural ecosystems which are not good generally for supporting other life and we see that I mean in my own work in the context of the human microbiome when you take antibiotics often you get an overgrowth of certain species which normally exist in the microbiome at low numbers but can take the opportunity of the depletion of the rest of the ecosystem to grow to very large numbers so something like clostridium difficile If you have a C. diff kind of overgrowth after a course of antibiotics, that can be very difficult to shift. So in the similarly in the case of coral, it seems that the more weed-like fast-growing varieties come back faster after bleaching events. And so there is a depletion of that diversity, which is part of the reason that we value coral reefs so highly.
1: And that question of biodiversity, because the other thing about I mean apart from the amazingness of coral themselves that they do support a huge abundance and variety of of plant and animal life don 't they I mean there's a reason that pit divers like to go and look at them because there is so much to see there and that which has you know and apart from the aesthetic value to, to us it has that biodiversity has a inherent value in itself yes,
0: so corals make up a very very small fraction of the ocean's total surface areas so the statistic that people commonly quote is it's only half a percent of the ocean floor yet they support about 30 percent of all marine fish species so they are really concentrations of marine life and there's a sort of virtuous circle there where the more marine life is concentrated there The more diversity there is, the more other life comes. And when people try to regenerate corals, they often try to fake that diversity. So there's some work about, for example, playing the sounds of coral reefs, which fish use to navigate. And if you you play recordings of fish species from a vibrant coral reef on one that is barren and doesn't have many species there, then over the next few days, fish will come and other species will come and start to try to, you know, join in in the ecosystem that they can hear is happening there. People are using that to attempt to regenerate reefs after they've been damaged. Diversity can
1: bring in continued diversity. As you say, they're found in only a very small percentage of the surface area of the, of the oceans. But they also... I mean, the oceans obviously have depth as well as breadth. And they can only form in shallow waters as well, right? Because you explain in the piece, because they depend on photosynthesis, they need to be close enough to the surface to have the sunlight to photosynthesize.
0: Yes. So they, because of the algae that are very important for the symbiosis of coral that form coral reefs, They must be within the photic zone, which is where light can penetrate down into the seawater. And as we alluded to earlier, there are other sorts of coral that don't require this symbiosis and those can grow in water that has no light at all. So the uh, cold water corals are those which don't require photosynthesis and they can extend down to, I've heard, 3,000 metres. I don't know if that's just... the deepest they've been found, and if they might extend deeper, or if they're a physiological reason that that is the limit. And they do form structures as well, which are called reefs, but we wouldn't think of them as coral reefs. They're more sort of banks of white stuff, you know, in black water. They're not the dense concentrations of, of marine life that we think of when we think of warm water coral reefs.
1: But warm water reefs, the ones which do depend, they they are still found deeper, aren't they? Which is because they're formed, I mean, you'll be able to describe this much better than me, but you write about it in the piece that they, they form. But if the seafloor below them, as it slowly drops away because of seismic movements, so that these corals, are, I mean, no longer living, but the, the structures that they formed are found, have been found much deeper as the ocean floor drops away beneath them and they build towards the surface. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, I write about this more in the piece, but one of the things that
0: fascinated scientists in the 19th century about corals was that you find these coral atolls, which are islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean or the middle of the Pacific Ocean, where the water is extraordinarily deep, and yet they have these corals there and the island itself is a small ring maybe between a mile and 20 miles in diameter formed of a coral reef and these presented a big puzzle because it was known at that time that you couldn't find living coral deeper than about 30 fathoms and a fathom is six feet so that's about 180 feet but the, these these coral islands existed in water that was much, much deeper than that. And one of the prevailing theories promoted by Charles Lyell in his Principles of Geology was that there were these subterranean volcanoes that had risen up underneath the sea to just below the sea's surface and that the corals had been able to grow on top of the rim of the crater of these volcanoes. And that explained how they could be there in very, very deep water. And it should be said, this was really based on a hypothesis. This wasn't based on the knowledge that these volcanoes existed or on depth soundings taken there. It was just kind of a plausible theory. But Charles Darwin thought that this theory was wrong and one I mean one example of why it might be quite surprising is that you often find coral atolls in kind of series so you find lots of them in a row where there's a sort of volcanic chain basically of islands and Darwin pointed out that on land when we have a mountain range we never find that all the mountains grow to exactly the same height and then stop and that's what you have to suppose if you are going to have all of these coral atolls that you've got all these subterranean volcanoes that have risen just to about, you know, no 180 feet below the surface and no higher and yeah, and no lower. So his theory instead, which he did conceive just through looking at charts, that he didn't actually go to a coral reef when he thought this up. He was sitting on the coast looking at coastal charts and he decided that now I need to say this carefully because they didn't know about tectonic plates so I don't want to uh, be anachronistic um, so Darwin his flash of insight was that the rising of the Earth's crust in one place should be balanced by its subsiding in another place and that if you had volcanic islands that were subsiding into the sea then there would be a coral fringe around the island sort of you know on the beach and just just beyond the beach in the shallow water and if the subsidence was slow and the the coral could grow faster than the subsidence then over time as the island sank the coral would keep growing upwards And even long after the island had sunk below the waves and kept on sinking down, the coral could still be there on the surface. And this indeed, with some qualification, and so that that theory is broadly correct. And I mentioned this in the piece, but in the 1950s, when the US were performing... And preparing to perform atomic bomb tests in the Marshall Islands, they drilled down through one atoll called Eniwetak atoll and were able to drill through over a thousand metres of carbonate before hitting a basalt base beneath it. So that meant that the coral atoll had been accumulating over a really, really long time. You had nearly a mile of, of sort of coral-like stuff. Um, but you, what Darwin got wrong is that he was thinking primarily about changes in the level of the Earth's crust. He didn't think that sea level change was very plausible. But in fact, sea level can change by huge amounts um, because of the sequestering of water in ice So when the ice caps melt, that can produce huge changes in sea level change. So, you know, we're talking like 100 metre differences. And so when that happens, as it has happened over the course of Earth's history, coral reefs can be left far above ground, no water. They just get eroded by the rain, basically. And then until tens of thousands of years later when they're next underwater will they start to will coral start to be there again and grow and in that core that was drilled through the atoll in the Marshall Islands you find layers that correspond to periods when there couldn't be any coral growing there so it's not this kind of nice continuous process like he imagined of a gradually sinking island with the sea level staying the same. Actually, there's a lot more dynamism in there.
1: If you enjoy listening to Seamus Perry and Mark Ford's Close Readings episodes on this podcast, you can join them for a live recording of their next episode, either in person at the London Review Bookshop or online from wherever you want. They'll be talking about Elliot's Wasteland on Thursday the 15th of December at 7pm UK time. You can buy tickets for that on the London Review Bookshop website or at the link below. And the sea level question, I mean, the Great Barrier Reef 10,000 years ago, during the last ice age, was, was not underwater. And so all of that, that has, grown, has grown in the last 8,000 years.
0: Yes. And when you talk to indigenous peoples from around the coast of Australia, there are many different stories from different parts of that coast that speak of being able to still walk to locations that are now underwater, or of when islands were larger than they are now, or of ancestors living where the Great Barrier Reef is now, but they lived on the coast. And yeah, based on what we now know about sea level rise, those stories must be at least 7,000 years old, probably slightly more, maybe as much as 12,000 years old, I think. And they're not... What's interesting about those is that those are continuous oral historical records that don't really come from a kind of single myth, as it were. They're very localized and specific to the topography of each place. So they must be one of the the longest um, transmissions of sort of facts about that kind of climatic disruption that we have
1: yeah i mean that's amazing really isn't it and i I mean i suppose there's a maybe stretching it to see a parallel between that oral history transmission and the and the slow growth of the and the growth of the coral i mean they're different kinds of record that you can see the see the the traces of the past in but those sorts of times i mean those i mean one of the things about climate change right is that those sorts of processes which have often been more gradual in the past are accelerating and that the you can see in the record that there were times when the ocean was warmer and more acidic and sea level change and all those things happening as part of the, I suppose it's okay like to use the word, natural, natural processes on Earth. But what we're seeing now is that the the effects of man-made climate change. Yes, of course, there has been
0: a great deal of climate change in the past. And what we know for a fact is that that has previously effectively wiped out coral reefs. So it's not that it happened before and it was fine. On a long scale, life always bounces back and ecosystems always restore into something different. But that's a really long scale. That's, uh, you know, the I think I've heard it said that the average lifespan of a species is something like 2 million years. I don't know how that really holds across... All of biology, but it's longer timescales than that that we're talking about. So we are perfectly capable of wiping out all of the ecosystems that we treasure so dearly in a very, very short amount of time. And waiting for them to be restored is not really feasible. And I think what's interesting about people who work on coral is that I think it's fair to say a large majority have come around to the idea now that it simply isn't possible to preserve the ecosystems as they were. So coral scientists who came of age studying the Great Barrier Reef in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, now know with certainty that that ecosystem that they love is not going to return in the same way. It's impossible for it to return. That doesn't mean that it will cease to exist there can be a continuity of it changing into something else and the opportunity to shape what it changes into is something that has been a very dangerous idea in people who work on ecosystems and conservation because you're not meant to meddle but there's a growing consensus that the meddling has been so extreme through inadvertent side effects, such as climate change. You know, it's not a goal of burning fossil fuels to wipe out corals. It's just a side effect. But that has been so extreme that it is now acceptable in a way that it wasn't before to start to interfere with natural ecosystems, to take coral that's grown in an aquarium and put it onto the reef and try and assist the reef to grow back into something that through science you believe is more beneficial for fish species for example
1: yeah or putting them the recordings of the sounds of other reefs I mean that's a similar exactly yes sort of very benign sounding I mean you write about this quite a lot in the piece these different kinds of technological fixes I mean one that you talk about that Paul Allen who he founded Microsoft along with Bill Gates and he went diving and he was so saddened by the extent of bleaching that he put a lot of money into satellite mapping. And as you say, there are serious risks in letting the whims of philanthropists dictate the ebb and flow of coral research. There's also the other threat that you mentioned and in, in just to, um, in blast fishing that local fishermen chucking bombs in the water to stun the fish. And that's clearly very bad for the coral reefs and one of the things that comes across quite clearly to me from the piece is it's just yet another one of the ways in which the environmental catastrophe is tied up with global inequality that the most reefs as you say in the piece are found in poor parts of the earth and and uh, you know you have sort of rich people who want to go on diving holidays who don't like it but there's a quite complicated um, debt relief system which is perhaps not as good as it seems
0: yes so yes i think Paul Allen is an interesting example because he was very keen on coral reefs and, among many other philanthropic endeavors, put a very small fraction of his large personal fortune into efforts to conserve coral reefs. And he died in 2018, and at the time of his death, he was the 44th richest person in the world. And I think a few years before that, or maybe even the same year that he died, his yacht ripped up 14,000 square feet of coral that was in a sort of conserved area. And about 80% of the coral reef there was destroyed. And the anchor of the ship basically ripped through this coral. This was obviously quite embarrassing for someone who had (laughs) devoted his... Uh, efforts to saving coral and that's the thing actually going to see coral is probably the worst thing you can do for it in a certain sense so lots of the people who go diving on coral particularly if you're an inexperienced diver you will bash into the coral and you know break off chunks the boats that put down their anchors will rip up the coral The sunscreen that tourists wear has been shown, although there's debate about this, to damage some species of coral. So it's really the curse that these ecosystems have, which is that anything that is kind of sustained in a sense by tourism, that's a big part of the local economy often the tourism can really damage those ecosystems and then on the yeah this idea of encouraging poor countries to conserve the ecosystems that are within their territory through debt relief is something that has become more common over the past few years it's a very financial approach to the problem so because broadly speaking poor countries owe a lot of money to rich countries and that debt is, you know, they continue to have to pay off the interest on that debt and it's very burdensome and very unfair. People in rich countries kind of band together with conservation agencies do a debt swap for conservation where So the way this works is that a rich country will discount some of the debt of a poor country and then allow a conservation agency to buy up that debt. And then the agreement with the poor country is that they will spend the value of the original debt on conservation efforts in their local currency. So this ensures that they still are bound to spend that money on conservation, but it's kind of beneficial for them because they don't have to pay it back to, um, to the wealthy country. And this is has been applauded by many people who are involved in setting up these sorts of schemes and they're very innovative and so on. But I think they really stick in the craw because it's so manifestly unfair as, as an approach to conservation to use a very unjust system of international debt as a lever to fund conservation efforts that are only needed because of the kind of structural reasons that are related to the massive wealth inequality in the first place. And that all continues apace and those structures are not
1: messed with. So all these attempts to fix, repair, maintain, sustain coral reefs, which are obviously well-meaning and worthy and scientifically valuable, many of them as well, are not going to work unless we are able to keep global warming below a certain level.
0: Yes, and I, I find it remarkable and sad that lots of the reef rebuilding efforts, for example may well be rebuilding reefs which in a few decades will die like all the other (laughs) reefs that are dying um and it's it's sort of want i think again with the kind of uh, philanthropy aspect is wanting to see positive change on a timescale that we can understand of a few years without seeing that bigger picture which is ever more apparent that know, globally, that ecosystem is in a very bad place. And yes, you mentioned COP27, which of course, coral reefs are being spoken about as, as one part of climate change. And there was an announcement that the UN's Agency for International Development has pledged 15 million euros to the Global Fund for Coral Reefs. And that in the context of the problem of global warming, is such a laughably small amount. I mean, I it really. I'm not saying that that won't produce some positive local change, but it's it's just dwarfed by the scale of the challenge of global warming. And in fact, the Global Fund for Coral Reefs is one of these new ventures. It's a public-private partnership, which was launched in September. 2020 and Prince Albert II of Monaco, who is a big ocean philanthropist, is very supportive of it. And it's explicitly sort of being constructed as an investment vehicle to fund innovative business models to improve the resilience of coral reefs. So it simultaneously has this kind of grant giving purpose where they will put bits of money into small projects. And then also an investment fund where they try to invest into good enterprises that will improve coral reefs somehow. And that's a mixture of UN agencies, it's got member states there, it's got philanthropists, it's got private investors, and they've all come together, and that's meant to be a good thing. Well, I think it's that remains to be seen and actually the positive change that those sorts of things can engender is compromised by the involvement of many contributors to the problem of climate change and that's interestingly a model that we're seeing for other global problems as well. So for antibiotic resistance there are organizations such as the AMR Action Fund, which is a public-private partnership that aims to develop, New antibiotics, that's a mixture of pharmaceutical companies and charitable organizations and so on putting money together and trying to invest it in such a way as to produce a good outcome. I'm skeptical of the likelihood of success of, of these things myself.
1: I mean, yeah, you say in the piece that the Deloitte have valued the Great Barrier Reef at forty two billion US dollars, which is about, you know, or twelve Sydney Opera houses. But is there a sense in which it I mean in the sense if you're trying to save something under capitalism you have to give it a monetary value because then but on the other hand if you're commodifying a coral reef in that way then you've already lost it.
0: Yes, I think it's a real bind and I'm not claiming that I have the answer, but it's connected with this wider idea of ecosystem services which is, you know, a way that many people in conservation now will talk about ecosystems to try and persuade investment in protecting them. And ecosystem services as a term was really popularized by the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, something that happened in the early 2000s and was done by the UN. And it really is a very neoliberal approach to nature. So it views nature as natural capital, uh, a stock of natural resources and some of that natural capital provides us with ongoing services just benefits that we derive from them uh, oxygen yeah
1: so <laughs> clean air is one of them right so clean air has a you can put a yeah a price tag as it were on clean air so it has a economic value it's and it's it's quite challenging to value these things right i mean
0: you can come up with numbers but um the continuation of life on earth presumably has some value to us i'm not sure what that value is or how it could be put in monetary terms but you know and there's this there's a wonderful quote um from somebody that i found that says that the environment is part of the economy and needs to be properly integrated into it so that growth opportunities will not be missed so it's kind of this thing that we must correctly value nature otherwise we're going to miss growth opportunities where we could convert some of that natural capital into monetary capital and make sure that we offset the damage that we did through economic growth. And I think this is very distasteful because um, you know continued economic growth on a finite planet is clearly not possible. And so at a certain point, you have to ask yourself whether continuing to view ecosystems as pots of natural capital that we can kind of basically trade in and you know construct derivatives based on we sort of financialize them as assets it's a game that conservation science is having to play within that within that system but it's a dangerous game and it's one that i don't think
1: it's winning at the moment Liam Shaw, thank you very much. You can read Liam's piece in the current issue of the LRB along with David Runciman on 12 Years of Tory Rule, Patricia Lockwood on George Saunders and Joanna Veery on Elizabeth Hardwick. This episode of the LRB podcast was produced by Zoe Kilbourne and Sarah Sahim.